Well, we're thankful you're here on this Lord's Day, and it is a day unto Him that we want to celebrate. And this morning is really just meant to um, help us think more biblically about Sunday mornings and so that we can grow closer to Christ because of it, Uh, that we would understand all the riches of His grace to rest in Him as we just sang that last lyric, um, to rest in Him, to treasure His grace, and to be able to come here and do that. When I was just taking some time this week to think about this subject, and it makes me think about church attendance, and you know, I sometimes pay attention to the surveys. A recent one from Pew Research says that um, when surveying um, people in the United States, about a third say they attend church weekly, one third say they come about once a month, and another third say that it's rare to never. While that same study also says that two-thirds of Americans claim to be Christian. So if you add all those factors together, then you would come to the conclusion that um, whether Christian or not, about two-thirds of our country place little value on the Lord's Day. Saying that, I don't see attendance as the single measure of true faith, but it does play a part in it because of the language of the New Testament, that when we are born again into a relationship with Jesus Christ, we're not only united to Christ, but the language of bride and groom, we are united to the bride, to the church. A recent comment by a preacher from Texas, Tony Evans, he said, people say I don't have to go to church to be a Christian, and they are absolutely right. Because salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But you also don't have to go home to be married. Stay away long enough, though, and your relationship will change. And what that gets at the heart of is what the Lord's Day is for. It's not for us to have attendance roles and track who's here and who isn't. It's really to help people to see that this day, this first day of the week, this most important day for the Christian is a day to remember him, to remember Jesus Christ, as Paul says in the New Testament, and to not just remember it alone, but to remember it as we gather together. And so that's what we're going to look at today in uh, addressing the issue of the Lord's Day. When we think about a Sunday and, and what it's for and how it came to be, we're going to look at some scriptures that uh, help us start down that path and then look at the people of the Lord's Day and then finally we'll look at what it is uh, in the Lord's Day that is so important for us to be here. What, what command are we obeying when we do that? So let's start by reading 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. This is just the first step uh, to discovering all that the Lord would have for us and understanding the importance of this day. And it comes by way of really a, a closing thought in the mind of Paul as we've been in the letter to the Corinthians. We've been mostly in chapters 12 to 14. Uh, but this final chapter, he starts with that phrase we've seen before now concerning, which is kind of the um, sixth or seventh time he's done it. And it's just highlighting the fact that, hey, here's a new topic that I want to touch on that probably I've been hearing a report Uh, about you guys, and there's some questions. And so he says, now concerning the collection for the saints. So this would be in the time of Paul, 55 AD, the equivalent of some type of offering that we would take up. But this isn't for their church. It's collecting for saints and churches abroad. So he says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia. So this isn't just exclusive to this church. This is something he does in all churches. So I want you to do this. On the first day of every week, Each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that 
no collections be made when I come. So let's not wait around for this when we gather. Uh, Think about this in advance. And so from this simple text, we want to start down the path of talking about the substance of the Lord's day. How did even the name and the observance of it come into being? Well, you see right there in that verse, under the substance of the Lord's day, that two key phrases in verse 2 clue us in on this. That by, the, you know, we're, we're talking just a few decades after Christ goes back to heaven, uh, the practice of the early church was to, it seems, gather regularly Sunday on the first day of every week. You see that in verse 2, on the first day, which if you look at language in the New Testament about the first day of the week, uh, starting in the Gospels, very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. So we could at least zero in and say, okay, we're talking about Sunday. And then he says, there's a practice on the first day of every week that y'all are together. I'm getting better at throwing y'all in, aren't I? Even though I use the individual, not the plural, all y'all, so forgive. But on the first day of every week, when everybody's getting together, you should have already had some money you set aside to bring to the giving of the saints. And so right out of the gate, very simply, we see a pattern in the New Testament that on Sundays, Christians are gathering on a regular basis. We also uh, can see that implied by Acts 20, verse 7. I'll just read it for you. You don't have to turn there. Uh, On the first day of the week, so we're talking Sunday again, when we were gathered together to break bread. Now that takes us all the way back, that breaking bread to Acts 2, doesn't it? What the church started doing right away, gathering for the apostles' teaching, corporate prayer to break bread. So he says, on the first day of the week when we, this is Paul's third uh, missionary journey around the Mediterranean, and he's uh, visiting Troas, a port city in Asia Minor, and he says, that first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. Insert joke about a preacher going too long. But those two passages, you put those together and you have evidence that, okay, Sunday gathering is a regular thing. Maybe the lingering question then is, where do we get this idea that Sunday means the Lord's Day? And we get it from John's writing, and this would have been A.D. 90, uh, so a little bit longer down the road. But church uh, historians would, would gather from Revelation 1.10 when Paul writes, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day and heard behind me a loud voice, the voice, the sound of a trumpet, that this is John now connecting this phrase, the Lord's Day to Sunday. So that's, that's the scriptural basis for this. But then you move into the early church fathers, the, the fathers like Ignatius, Justin Martyr, Origen, Augustine, who all would say the practice that they knew of from that first apostolic era and then onward was that Sunday was the first day of the week. They gathered on it, and it was called the Lord's Day. And that's as simple as you can make it. And that even in that simplicity, those same church fathers would show that there was a clear break from the Old Testament pattern of observing Sabbath on a Saturday to these new people of God, these new covenant Christians, the high and holy day of the week for them was the Lord's Day on Sunday. Mind you, though, nowhere in the New Testament do you see that called the Sabbath. So what I would put out there today is our starting point, and it may throw some people off because just inherited maybe from attending church your whole life is that you would say, okay, today's the Sabbath. Yeah, it's the Lord's day. This is my day of rest. But you wouldn't have a clear biblical case to say that the Lord's day equals the Sabbath. I know there's good and godly men who would disagree with that. It's a view that really when it comes down to it as a matter of interpretation, some views see a lot more continuity between the Old Testament and the New. Uh, For example, infant baptism versus adult believer's baptism. 
Uh, good Presbyterians that I, that I love and, and read their books and follow their preaching would say that they see continuity in the Old Testament between the circumcision of young children to infant baptism in the new, which is a dedication. Some of these guys, you know, R.C. Sproul and others who I've read, would say, in no way do I believe that's a salvific maneuver. Whereas we would say the practice of baptism is for somebody who's already in Christ, per the New Testament. They would just see more continuity between the old and the new. Similar here, if somebody would want to come up afterwards and say, I think, uh, and I can't be told otherwise, that the Lord's Day is the Sabbath. Probably because in the way you look at your Bible, you might see more continuity where I would see discontinuity. But what we can gather from this is that it's very simple to see that the Bible says Sunday is the Lord's day. And when it comes to an implication from that by way of Hebrews 10.25, we should not neglect or forsake assembling together as is the habit of some. So that's the basics of it. But now we want to kind of pull it apart a little bit and see, well, what is the substance of this day? Why is it such a wonderful day for the Christian to remember and rejoice in? Because maybe what you could see as carrying over from the Old Testament to the New is that if the Sabbath was meant to be a day of rest, that you can find in New Testament writings this, this focus on Jesus Christ being Lord of the Sabbath and the Gospels, and then being the greater Sabbath in, in Hebrews chapter 4, is that we find our what in Him? Our rest. Our spiritual rest. That when, when He says, come to me you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, He's not talking about, I've got a good place for you to take a nap. You know, or this would be a wonderful time for you to put down your plow, stop working, and just chill. No, when Christ is talking about entering his rest, or when Hebrews 4, 9, and 10 says, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. For believers, Jesus Christ's rest is first and foremost our spiritual rest. As we already read this morning in Romans 5, having been justified by faith, we have what with God? Peace with God. And really, when we talk about having rest, I mean, just generally speaking, uh, we need rest because we need some peace, as we like to call it, peace and quiet. Well, in the spiritual dimension, when we could say that we have peace with God, we know as believers that all sins, past, present, and future, are what? They're paid for. And there's no greater peace that you can have with God than to know that than to have the assurance of salvation that my sins past are forgiven, the sins that I might have even committed today are forgiven, and that one day I hope in the promise of eternal life, the promise that His peace He gives to me. In this world I'll have trouble, but take heed, I have overcome the world, and I promise to go and build a place for you. I mean, all those promises of rest in Christ are spiritual. Yet when you try to hold too hard to the Old Testament mentality of, of Sabbath rest, you're, you're holding more to this idea that physically I work hard, I need a break, I have to stop and remember uh, that I can't do it all. And that's a good thing. Nobody would argue with you on that matter. It's just that we have to be careful to immediately take that, uh, cross that bridge over from the old to the new and say whatever it was that God was trying to do with the Sabbath in the Old Testament is now what we should do with the Lord's Day on a Sunday and um, that bridge isn't built. Yet, at the same time, we wouldn't deny that it is important for us to have physical rest. 
I mean, Sunday, first and foremost, is a great day to remember that we should take rest in Jesus Christ and remember him as we gather for our salvation. Now, if you, in your mind, because it's, it's already the day you're coming to do this and you don't have to work today, see, this is your Sabbath rest. Well, what would that mean? Well, the word Sabbath in the Old Testament just meant to cease, to stop. And so if you say, hey, the rest of the day, my, my family, as for me and my household, we're going to rest in the Lord and rest from our work. Go for it. Have at it. But don't lose sight of the substance of the Lord's day for the shadow. I'm stealing from Paul in Colossians 2, 16 and 17, when he says, in fact, one of the reasons I go in the direction against thinking that that Sabbath carries over to the Lord's day is because nowhere do you see in Paul's writing in the New Testament uh, the, the move for the Christian to remember that the Sabbath is a day of rest rather than to remember that it is Christ who is the substance in any type of rest and Sabbath language is but a shadow. And shadows, what? They, they are representative, but they're not the real thing. So listen to Colossians 2, 16 and 17, when he warns, Therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink, or in respect to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. As in, don't take your eyes off of now who we know our ultimate rest is in and why we find our rest in him for what he's accomplished for us. Something that no ceremony, no day of the week, uh, or he says, no, no abstinence from a food or drink or whatever those festivals or new moons, none of those things can do what? Provide for your righteousness. Only Christ can. He's the substance. Those are the shadows. And so you can think of this on a you know, human level as... Uh, if you were going to try to um, give a gift to your kid and say, hey, you know, come out to the garage, got you a new bike, and you had the lights out in there, and then you say, stand there and look at the wall, face the wall, and then you shine a flashlight through the bike and project it onto the wall and say, there's your bike, enjoy riding your shadow bike, and your kid just turns around and a tear forms, I'm like, just kidding, it was just a joke, here's the substance, get on it. You know, that's, that's the, the idea of the difference between the two. Something like a Sabbath rest, though it gives us a picture of something and, and something wonderful. Resting in God. The substance of our rest is who? Jesus Christ and Him alone. Even the warning that Paul gives in Galatians 4.9 continues on that point that those who have come to know God or to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worth, worthless elemental things, the physical things? to which you desire to be enslaved to again. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I've labored over you in vain. That all the work Paul had done teaching that church in Galatia, that you cannot be saved, justified by works of the law. Now you're going back to some of those works. And it could very well be that Sabbath observance was one of them. The big point in this is this. Sunday is a great day to remember your spiritual rest is in his finished work. Yet it's not an exclusive day for that, right? I mean, we want to remember that every day of the week. I mean, all the time. But when we gather here on Sunday, the substance of what we're here to do in worshiping Jesus Christ, it can never be lost on us that we wouldn't be here on a Sunday doing this if not for him, what? Rising again from the grave. And it's the day that in church history has always been this day. Started back in the New Testament time. That being said, you might be wondering, then what do I do about this idea of Sabbath? 
What do I do about the Old Testament idea of resting? Well, I would say if Sunday is a great day to rejoice and remember that your spiritual rest is in Christ, your salvation, um, any day of the week is a good day to take a physical rest. I mean, you, we, for one, have to do it when we go to sleep at night, but today it's just, I'm going to cease from the striving and the working that uh, man is born into under the sun. Like, pick that day and do it. Uh, because of your vocation and responsibilities, maybe Saturday isn't that day for you. So what day is it? And does it have to be a full 24-hour day? See, this is where we start to drift dangerously towards the Pharisee's life which is they want the strict observance down to the hour, down to where you walk, what you say, what you do. And the New Testament does not point you in that direction whatsoever. If you're going to rest, Paul would say, enjoy it. Pick the time, pick the place, and do it to the glory of God. Listen to him in Romans 14, 5 and 6. One person, actually you could turn there and if you want, we could camp out in Romans 14, because it's a great chapter on the conscience and Christian liberty, which, hey, the Sabbath is a great test case for it, but it extends to all matters of practice. Romans 14, he says, now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. I mean, right there, as he starts down this chapter of talking about conscience and the Christian liberty, he already says, look, you're going to have some that their faith, you can call it weak, and that not be a judgmental term, as in it's sensitive. If you've always wondered about like the language of weaker and stronger brothers in the New Testament, think of the word sensitivity. Sensitivity to what? To thinking they might be in sin, even if they're not. And Paul's overriding principle is you would never want to lead somebody down the path to go against their own conscience if they think it's sin. That's why at the end of the chapter he says, uh, whatever is not from faith is sin, as in to say, look, if, if somebody has a sensitive conscience to what they're going to do, what they're going to observe, uh, and they really believe it's a sin, don't you go stand in there if you're the stronger brother trying to push them into it. So jump down to verse 5. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Every person must be fully convinced in his own mind. So if, if I'm making the case for why I don't see continuity between Old Testament Sabbath observation for the Jew and then New Testament Sabbath observation for the Christian, verse 5 is one of those that I would say, look, if, if ever there was a point Paul was going to stop and say, guys, except for we still should keep the Sabbath as holy and it's now moved to a Sunday. I would think he would have put it in verse 5 because the language is so expansive, isn't it? One person regards one day above another. Okay, he's saying that's fine. Another sees every day alike, as in they look at all seven days of the week and think, I can use every day to the glory of God this week. Maybe whatever rhythm of life they have, they have a little bit of a Sabbath every day. Versus one day, he says, look, it's all a matter of that perspective of how you want to view the day, but... Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. That's the conscience. And your conscience is informed by the Word of God. Now, in that, you might have some past experiences that make you so inclined to think something might be more spiritual than it is. Verse 6, the remedy is he who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And if it's, you know, because he's talking in this chapter about things you can eat or not eat. He who eats does it for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. Uh, what's he trying to say there? Well, if you're in your observation of a special day, 
you're doing it unto the Lord, and that's the thing, then great, carry on. But just because someone else doesn't do it like you do it doesn't give you the right to do what to them. Judge them for it. So I just think of maybe like a practical reality, like say I met somebody that's new attending here and they came out of a Jewish background and they are just, they're new in the faith and they come after me after this service and they, they say, look, I have to keep the Sabbath on Saturday. No question. And I would say, you know what? If you're fully convinced in your mind that doing that is not earning your righteousness, but that it is something you do unto the Lord and need to continue to do, then go for it. Now, if behind the scenes I'm going, okay, so who's the weaker and stronger brother there? Well, the weaker brother is the one that they have this something other than a direct command in the New Testament, a clear principle to follow, a matter of prudence, and they want to follow it. As a stronger brother, I'm not going to try to say, hey, listen, buddy, let me sit you down right now, and if you dare observe the Sabbath next Saturday, you're in sin because you're trusting in the Sabbath and not in Christ. I can't do that to him. It might take a good while before the opinion would change. That's not what the stronger brother does to the weaker brother. But at the same time, he would say, who are you, weaker one, to be in contempt of the stronger one? That that guy wouldn't walk away saying, huh, that pastor there at HBC, he doesn't care about resting. He just thinks we should just keep going and going and going, and he doesn't want to honor the Lord, and that would be sitting in judgment on me. And he, now, now, here's the tricky part. In these scenarios, if you've ever had to deal with Christian liberty, neither person really wants to be the weaker one, right? The weaker one, in their mind, because they're keeping something additional in the law, think they're the stronger one with greater conviction and zeal. And this guy, he's just one of those libertine pastors that's going to, next thing you know, he's going to be saying, Yo, okay, let's talk about alcohol. We're not going to talk about alcohol. Save it for another day. But that's the way we want to go to prove our own what? What's the word he has there? Opinion. That if one person is going to do it, what they think, passing judgment on opinions in verse 1. And Paul's saying, look, you need to have in your own conscience clear what you're doing there today. And, and, and do it unto the Lord. So if today is your day to chill, I mean, after you worship the Lord here today, and you're like, I don't do anything on Sunday. Just don't say it's so spiritual. I don't do anything on Sunday. I go home, the worship music goes on, and it's just, like, relax on that. But if somebody's like, hey, man, I got this pile of leaves I need help with. Could you please? And you say, hey, it's, it's um, and I'm convinced in my conscience that um, it's the Sabbath and I can't help you work. But I know this pastor who doesn't believe it, and here's his number, and uh, he may be taking a nap to the glory of God, but you can wake him up. Some of you are really sweet to me. Uh, when you text me on Sunday, it's always like, I'm so sorry to bother you. I think the picture of me is that I'm like at home in an iron lung trying to recuperate from preaching. Um, it's not the case. I actually find great joy in doing this. And um, just like you probably have something you do that actually energizes you while it maybe drains you. And, and so uh, you can connect with me on Sundays if ever you so choose. Just know that if a Steeler game's on and I got a sandwich in my hand, like come join me but I'm probably not going to run out and pick up a rake with you right away. Be convinced in your own mind. So that's the first takeaway. Sunday's a great day to remember and rejoice your spiritual rest is found in Christ. Isn't that awesome? Like that's the high point of this thing? But every day can be a day that you can remember that you do need physical rest. 
If if the Old Testament Sabbath taught anything, it's helping us know our limits. We're not God. We must stop. We need rest. And in stopping and resting and looking around, appreciate all of God's goodness to you. But I don't want to restrict that to a Sabbath. I want to see that every day. So every day do I have some rhythm built into my life, whether it's early morning or in the evening or taking a drive, to be able to stop, to cease striving and know that he's God. I think when you try to think about these things, always err on the side of something expanding out to something more in praise to God, rather than restricting it. Okay, enough with that. Now let's talk about who the Lord's Day is for. Who's the society that gathers? Well, the the simple principle in the New Testament is we are a redeemed people. Titus 2.14, the society of the Lord's day is redeemed people. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. We're redeemed people. That means a delivered people, a released people, people that were captives and now they're free. Colossians 1.13, for Jesus rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's who Christians are and that's what we're here to do on Sunday is to celebrate our redemption in Christ. That's why we would say we're a Christ-exalting church. That's what we, we come here to gather is to put the focus on Christ. Caught out of the world, that, that world of darkness into the glorious light of the gospel. And so that would be maybe the most broad way we can look at a term for a Christian in the New Testament. But let's look at some nouns that uh, Paul would use in particular to talk to the church. And the first one that might come to mind is that we are saints. Uh, you see the, that greeting all over the New Testament, like in Philippians 1.1, to the saints in Christ Jesus in Philippi. That word saints, word for Uh, Holy ones, set apart ones, is used a hundred times in 18 different uh, letters in the New Testament. So I would say that's a a pretty good starting point to again go from, okay, we're redeemed people, but when he's talking about the church and being gathered together, maybe the first good word that comes to mind is saints, because that means we are set apart, set apart from the world. That Even right now, can you picture you're, you're here? This is where we are. We're set apart from what? Whatever the world is doing right now. Uh, Whatever things keep the world busy, this is our agenda here, is to be together. But rather than uh, limit it to this idea of things that we don't do, set apart from, I think I was helped most by a book by a guy named Sinclair Ferguson, a Presbyterian I love and love to read and uh, listen to him preach. He had a book on sanctification, which is a word for holiness, relates to the word saint, and it was called Devoted to God, and the title gave it away that he was trying to give, shed new light on the idea of our holiness or sanctification or growing to be more like Christ by basically saying, don't just limit when you talk about sanctification to this idea of, oh, I'm set apart from these things. These are all the things I don't do. As in, I, I move away from. But in this book, Devoted to God, he wants to say the thing that you're actually saying in that is what, what's the positive thing you are being committed to? It's Jesus Christ. What is our sanctification or being holy or being saints other than saying we are devoted to who? We're devoted to Christ. And by being devoted to Him, yes, then there will be things I separate myself from. And maybe think about that as you um, consider the way you are um, salt and light to the people around you that aren't believers. 
And if, you wanted, if they were asked, hey, do you know Joe or do you know Sally? Um, is, is what's distinctive about their Christian life the things that they are set apart from and don't do? Or that which they are set towards and devoted to? Would their answer be, yeah, I mean, I don't, there might be a lot of things I know that, you know, Joe doesn't do, but I know one thing he is committed to and devoted to, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is devoted to God. And if I ask him to do something, um, you know, that would go against his devotion to God, he, he turns me down. Or would it be, yeah, I don't know much about that guy's faith. In fact, I don't even know who he believes in, but man, I know that he won't celebrate Halloween. Yeah, I brought it up the other day at work and he gave me like a 45-minute lecture on uh, how Halloween's, you know, the worst day on the planet. I have no idea what he actually believes in, but I know he hates that. I brought up, hey, would you want to watch a football game on a Sunday with me? Oh man, I got another lecture on, you know, no way could I watch a football game on Sunday. Here's all the ills of uh, modern consumerism and materialism. Just being defined by the things you're what? Set apart from? versus being known by the one you're set apart and devoted to, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Ferguson in his book was trying to draw out. Are we known in our holiness and sanctification about the one we're devoted to above and beyond all the other things? And you see the implications for this. I mean, they could, you could take them in a number of directions and then apply them to how you see Sunday the Lord's Day. In being devoted to God today, and wanting to come here and worship and, and be awake and alive and energized because of your love for the Lord, maybe that does change some of the things you're devoted to on Saturday night. Some of the things you might not do on Saturday night. One, if they're just outright told not to do from the Scriptures very clearly in the New Testament. But there might be some things you turn down, not because you're saying, oh, I'm against that. You know, if, I, if you would invite me to Carowinds on a Saturday, I'd probably decline. And it's not, again, because Carowinds is this evil, worldly place. It may have some things there. I would just say, look, I know I'm going to get sick on all the rides. Um, I'll have a headache by the time I head home. And then I've got to try to fall asleep and preach the next day. And my devotion to the Lord, not high and holy, it's just I know what I want to do to honor the Lord on Sunday. And Carowinds probably won't jive with that. You want to drink coffee and hang? I mean, sign me up, except it's got to be decaf afternoon. It's the thing I'm devoted to on Sunday morning, the people I'm devoted to, that determines then maybe the limits of what I say yes to. And that's maybe a new way to frame the way you look at your sanctification, is it's who you're devoted to, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the way you love him, that then is the root of the fruit of some of the boundaries you create, so that people just don't know us by what? The things I don't do but the one I'm actually in love with, the God that I love with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. So that's the word saints. Next word you might find in the New Testament used a lot that's good to describe ourselves is faithful, believers. Those are used interchangeably in the New Testament. It's the same root word for faith or belief. Ephesians 1.1, when Paul's talking about the church, he says to the saints who are at Ephesus and are faithful in Christ, and yet in Acts 16, when we read this narrative account, Paul came to Derby and Lystra and a disciple there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. 
So whether you're using this word as faithful or believer, it's the same person, and they're defined by their fidelity, their faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. So sometimes they're called faithful, sometimes they're called believer. And that would be a second angle you could use to describe who are the people that gather on Sunday. They're believers. But it's just not this... um, intellectual agreement that we all have, yes and no, true and false. It's a faithfulness from the heart, a devotion from the heart like we just talked about. And that word's all over the New Testament as well. So we're saints, and the word that would summarize that would be our holiness and devotion. And then we're believers, and the words that would summarize that would be our fidelity and faithfulness. And then the third word I would give to you to think about uh, when you gather on the Lord's day with the Lord's people, what it were to be characterized would be the word... um, Brothers and sisters, Colossians 1.1, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ. Or when Paul's giving instruction on how believers are to treat brothers and sisters when you might work for them. 1 Timothy 6.2, those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. What's, what's happening there? He's equating these ideas that, yes, we are in the family of God together. We are brothers and sisters in Christ because we're believers together. We're faithful together. And so don't use that as an excuse. And the point of that uh, command is don't use that as an excuse that if your boss is a Christian and maybe happens to go to church with you uh, to expect them to look the other way if you're showing up late all the time, Right? but it's because I'm staying up late doing these Bible studies. Might be what he's trying to get across here. Like, no, don't do that. Stay up late doing Bible studies and come to work on time. But this idea, this third phrase of um, brothers and sisters, maybe the word I would associate that would be family or community. And I wanted to highlight those three words just as we think about uh, the importance of us gathering on the Lord's day together, how we feel about one another. How does holiness, faithfulness, and community represent the way we live out our faith together? Is is our conduct among the church one of holiness, that getting around each other, we're inspired to greater devotion to the Lord? Are we consistent in our commitment to attend here? An example of faithfulness? And then are we committed to this body as a family would be to one another? Not on the periphery, but as much as we can at the heart of it. So just maybe have those words in your mind as you, uh, even on today, we're going to take the Lord's table and examine our hearts and say, hey, would holiness and faithfulness and uh, community or family, love for the brothers and sisters here really define my existence as, as part of my life in the body here? So that's the society of the Lord's day. And then last but not least, uh, last point, the standard of the Lord's day. What's the standard expected of us for gathering? And what I mean by that is, is there um, a clear command in Scripture that we gather? And there is. It's in Hebrews chapter 10. That um, because God cares about our devotion to Him, that maybe if this command weren't to be in the New Testament, um, we would, as that quote from Tony Evans suggested, we uh, we would take the easier path and think we really don't need to be in church that um, we could you know, make it on our own and be fine on our own. And, and uh, the writer of Hebrews doesn't seem to think that way. 
And as he talks about our relationship with God, first and foremost, that we have this new and living way, Hebrews 10.20, uh, that has now been inaugurated for us through the flesh, through Christ's body being broken and blood poured out. Now we have a great high priest. We don't need other priests. We have the great intercessor. Let's draw near, first draw near to God with full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope together without wavering. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. You see all the plural language here that we're doing this together as a community. Our confession of faith. Our, our, our provoking one another to greater love for each other and, and serving one another. And then, verse 25, the reason that there is a, a, a command, or not a reason, the, the command that we have that is our reason for not just being uh, willy-nilly about church attendance is it says, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some. And he doesn't follow that up with saying, because we're taking attendance or we're going to judge you. No, because we want to encourage one another all the more is what? The day the Lord draws near. We need each other to, to be there for each other, to bear each other's burdens, to build each other up, to encourage one another. And to not do that, he says, would be to forsake our assembling, and it becomes the habit of some people. Now, that's not legalism. Um, when somebody asks, like, sees you and is like, hey man, I haven't seen you in church lately. That's not being a Pharisee. That's, that's no different from a, a simple question you might ask a believer like, um, how are you doing in the Lord? How's your love for the Lord? Why? Because the New Testament commands we love the Lord. Uh, I haven't seen you in church lately. Are you okay? Like, if you immediately recoil at that or bristle at that, I mean, it's, it's a command to obey. So that what? Our hearts are greater devoted to the Lord, that we don't grow cold by being distant from the body of Christ together where we can uh, build each other up and encourage one another to keep going on as the days come that are harder. And obedience to commands in our growth and sanctification fit together hand in glove. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ. You see the connection right there between your sanctification and your obedience? I'll read it again. It's just, it's, it, you could pass it by because it's a greeting. 1 Peter 1, as he says, to those who are aliens, scattered, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. He, he knows, he sees. By the sanctifying work of the Spirit, What's the Spirit doing in sanctifying us? To obey Jesus Christ. So, being held to a standard, if you want to call it that, of the Lord's day to be here together, isn't going down the path of legalism. It's the path of obedience which lends itself to our sanctification. It's good for me. It's good for you. It's good for all believers to have a local church that they're committed to. And that that church can be committed then to them. Now, I know sometimes there's seasons of uh, you, you were in a church for a certain season of life. And even I was talking to a brother this morning that he was grateful to be here. And we were just talking about it was the Lord's timing in, in him, him coming here. And it often is in different churches where you say, oh, I wish I would have uh, found this church sooner because of the, you know, the way that the ministries are run and the way they teach the Bible and the commitment to life in the body. Well, that's good to be thankful for those things. And it's always in the Lord's timing. But the heart of why this brother was so encouraged is just because he loves being with the saints here. He loves what's going on here. And that's a good thing. And that's good for his growth in the Lord. It's good for all of our growth. 
To forsake gathering on Sunday, that's a powerful word. It's a word for desertion. Um, Somebody's supposed to be at a spot and they, they abandon it. And I think that the thrust of that isn't immediately to say you're abandoning Christ. You know, and to sit in judgment on somebody's salvation or their soul. It's a forsaking of gathering and being together with one another as in to suggest we need each other. If I'm going through a good time, you know, and God's been gracious to me and I can come alongside somebody that's, you know, in a valley and they're hurting and vice versa. I mean, that's the heart behind this command. We're trying to stimulate each other to love and good deeds, not forsake assembling, because it can become the habit of some. And, and, and don't lose sight of that simple phrase right there, the habit. As in, it can just kind of become commonplace, maybe to drift. And it, like a habit forms, and you don't necessarily set out to make that your habit, but just start doing it. And then somebody's like, hey, I noticed you're, you got this habit now. What are you, what's up with that? And uh, they're like, oh, I didn't realize it, you know, and so you change. And he says, it's the habit of some. It's not, I'm not looking out here, you know, heavy-handed and thinking this whole congregation is a bunch of people that want to not come to church Sunday. He's just saying, hey, some may have a habit of neglecting to get together and assemble with other believers. So, you know, you think about the application of that today. Um, there's wonderful reasons that we may not gather on a Sunday. The good reasons, meaning you got an anniversary and you, you take your spouse away, or you're going with your family on a vacation. Um, and there's hard reasons, physical health, uh, trying to take care of somebody that's a shut-in, whatever those might be. But I think he's, he, that, that's not the point here. The point is, is it just this idea that we start to find ourselves um, more obligated to the things that should be optional and less obligated to the thing that's not. You know what I'm saying? You know, the things that are optional that we could do with our weekends, or even life in the body during the week, we start to see those options as obligations. And the things that we should be obligated to in the body of Christ together, we start to put in the category as optional. And again, our initial defense, if we don't like the sound of that, may be to think we're going down a legalistic path. When it's just the path of fulfilling this command, maybe you have to ask yourself, what's the other thing then you're fighting for? Um, are you really worried about legalism and living under that by faithful church attendance? Or is there some worry in your heart that if you, um, you know, don't have your kid away on weekends for the AAU team, that he's going to miss out on a chance to be a really great superstar? Love sports, but I got to watch those idols. You know, I've got to be the first in line. I mean, the questions I ask these moments are coming out of my own life. Well, what am I going to put as top? And is there, you know, and rather than just rag on people immediately, it's what's the, what's the heart issue there? I mean, if the priority isn't to gather, as this says, with the body to encourage and build each other up, what's the other thing that's getting in the way of that? And why do you think that is? And that's an open-ended question. That's not an accusation. And that's good to have believers to discuss that with. I mean, I would encourage you first to take that to the Lord. Lord, why is it? You know, I'm holding on to this other thing I like to do with my freedoms on the weekend. But I hold, maybe tend to hold, it's become the habit to hold loosely to this commitment to a body. Heart questions. 
And those are the best. I mean, because they, they, they reveal what's down there. And we say, like the psalmist in Psalm 139, you know, examine my heart, search me, O God, and know my heart, try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me. I mean, all this comes back to the simple point of we want to, we want to maximize this day. We want to maximize the opportunity to be with each other. We want to minimize the, the rest of the week we have and the way that the world just feels like it pushes in on us to, 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 to not underestimate that our enemy is wily and worldly wise and wants to devise schemes to pull our affections away from Christ. And so we have to fight against that pulling away, but I hope what you hear today, the heart of it is being pulled towards Christ, being devoted to him on his day with his people and just fulfilling one simple command to have it be the habit of our heart to want to be together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank for thankful for your word. We thankful for the work that it does in us. Help us to love you more in light of it. Help us to cherish the time that we get together every Sunday. Thank you for the other ministries here, the Sunday night ministry to teenagers and the weekly ministry to college students, the life groups and the outreaches. And all those are expressions, Lord, of, our, of our being, um, us being grateful children for the grace you've shown us in Christ today. We praise you for the opportunity now to remember the Lord in communion and to observe the Lord's table in a way that um, ministers to our heart, to know all our sins are washed away in him. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.